Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Ned Pro Podcast. My name is James Bradfield and I'm one of our deputy co-leads of our Global Innovation Panel. My guest on the podcast this week is Dr. Renita Barton. Now, Dr. Renita is an architect and building scientist working in energy behaviour and building design, amongst other things. She is an academic holding a number of positions such as at the University of Cambridge's School of Architecture. Now, I spoke with Dr. Renita about her work studying the physical environment in which people live and how that's shown a very direct effect on their health and their well-being while also overlapping with food and eating behavior with specific reference to slum rehabilitation housing. Like many things nowadays we ended up having a conversation about how COVID-19 has affected her work and the health of these people in these housing, this housing as well. It's a little bit different maybe to what we've had on the show up to this point but it's a really good example of the multidisciplinary nature of what NEDPRO does and hopefully you'll all enjoy listening as much as I enjoyed speaking with Dr. Barton. So soon we'll release another episode which will be, which will be with Professor Shimon Ray um, and, and, but this conversation gives a huge amount of background to some of the issues that we spoke about afterwards such as food security with lessons from our own work in Kolkata with our mobile teaching kitchen initiative as well as some of the work that we've done alongside the UN. But all of that is coming up very soon. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy this conversation with Dr. Renita Barton. Okay, so thank you very much, um, Renita, for, for joining me today. Um, for those of you who, who are unfamiliar with um, Dr. Renita's work, Dr. Renita Barton is a building scientist and an urban engineer educator working in energy behavior, building design and environmental modeling. She is a Selwyn College Fellow and Director of Studies and runs the Sustainable Design Group at the Behaviour and Building Performance Lab at the Martin Centre for Architectural and Urban Studies within the University of Cambridge's Department of Architecture. Her research focuses on the overlap between engineering research and social sciences, um, and she also holds visiting positions at Stanford University and the Indian Institute of Technology at Bombay. Currently, Dr. Ranita is working with collaborators in Brazil, South Africa, Indonesia and Pakistan, all countries who are seeking to emulate India's slum rehabilitation housing policy. So Dr. Ranita, before we get started on all of your work and all of your research, I suppose the first question to ask is how has COVID-19 and the, the, the pandemic affected you and your work right now? Thank you, James, uh, for connecting me at this point of uh, in time. Uh, I, I came to India for a project work and, uh, and when things were apparently very safe and we, I didn't expect anything to, uh, drastic to happen because India was not on the radar. UK, India didn't have any UK travel advisory. So I said, I'll quickly wrap up my two week project work and go back to my comfort zone in Cambridge. But mm -hmm. uh, things changed overnight and India went on, uh, on lockdowns and uh, the, uh, the borders were closed and, uh, all, and, 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 and I had to take very uh, quick decisions. I was in Mumbai and when Mumbai was about to close down, I had to travel back to my parents' place in Calcutta. It was a very difficult decision given that my parents are also in the vulnerable age group and it yeah. wasn't an easy choice for me to make. But nonetheless, you come back home and you don't get to hug your parents because uh, there is a government advisory. People who have traveled uh, history within the last 15 days have to uh, go in for self-isolation and then... Uh, and henceforth into quarantine and so it was it was I think first 14 days was really challenging and 
really um i, I would say very stressful because yeah. I, I just bought supplies for two weeks worth of travel you don't get too much and since i know india very well i thought if i even if i miss certain things in my luggage it's perfectly fine i'll get it in india but yeah, then yeah. no sh- no shops are open and nothing so that affected quite a lot i think but then slowly you know uh, yeah things have uh, I've, I've, i've completed my 14 days of self isolation and i'm yes. i'm in quarantine and uh, and i have set up my work from home uh, desk and my computer is ready now i know who to connect and where to connect our meetings are being scheduled i think the larger thing is we have to be very kind to each other at this point yeah i think that that's a, always a good place to start any sort of a discussion really exactly. but i think you you've definitely raised a couple of really good points i mean the 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 first thing is the the speed at which things changed and the fact that things right. happened like you mentioned kind of india changing overnight and i think some people were kind of caught between do i stay do i go you know what point exactly. do i make my decision and and i think people got caught a little bit in the middle but like you say um very important to be to be kind and like i think that's a, a really good place to start at least um which, yes. is, which is lovely um so renita a lot of your research focuses around slum rehabilitation housing or maybe people might have seen it as written down as SRH um yeah for those who are unfamiliar and I to be honest put myself in that category as well can you give us a little bit of an introduction to what those kind of what what that really means and and aside from yeah. just maybe the um physical building because obviously I mean with your own background yes. that's, that's a lot of your re- interest but also sort of maybe the, the structural or the policy aspects of right. these types of housing as well please Yes. So uh, this this is a fairly new type of urban typology that housing typology that we are seeing across the global south is just not India. Uh, India was very proactive in taking certain decisions about uh, making slum free cities and it's not a very new thing that India has been trying it has been trying since uh, 1947 uh, after the okay. colonial regime was ended and so we have seen like almost 70 years of uh, trying a uh, policy is trying to make slum free cities and slum mm-hmm. has persisted ever since so um if you want want to understand the magnitude of the slums uh, especially in mega cities like mumbai 55% of population of mumbai live in slum or slum like situations the density is very very high it's almost yeah. 30000 persons per square kilometer right. and um, right. when i when i talk of slums uh, especially daravi which is the asia's la- largest slum mm-hmm. uh, you have um almost 1 million population living in there yeah yeah so you can understand just one slum in throughout mumbai would have so much amount of population living in such a small area and so that that raises a lot of uh, questions uh, and that, that that is why in policy sphere there has been a lot of attempts to make uh, these cities slum free and to give a better quality of life to people who are uh, squatting or in the slum so india mm. is very unique in that sense because india has been has uh, something which has constitutionalized and institutionalized slums so now uh, slum is an identified typology and people who live in slums they get something called slum card or something like an identification that they belong to as a slum dweller okay and um, during 1990s the government came up with a very um, interesting plan such that because uh, the slum people can get the house which is not far away from the slum they live in because okay. all previous attempts had failed because they used to get uh, uh, these kind of free houses away from the city center where they are located currently 
and uh, so they they lose their livelihoods and they lose their social connect and they lose their context just kind so of never, from, yeah exactly so people never took up those houses so either they sold it up or they just left it vacant and uh, squatted somewhere else and started a new slum so there was this whole rebound phenomenon of slum being recreated were happening uh, as as and when new policies of slum free in policies were uh, taking place and that was a starting point of this sort of a slum rehabilitation program of in 1990 where the government said well, let's do something so that we don't have to displace population completely from the place that they are so what they have come up with this policy is a very unique policy and i'm very interested in this policy in the sense it's a it's a very fantastic policy in terms mm. of if you see when they want to close the housing deficit so what they say that a group of uh, slum dwellers or the whole slum forms a cooperative and then they approach a developer saying that we want better quality housing the developer then goes to the uh, authorities which is called the slum rehabilitation authority of mumbai and says that these slum dwellers wants to get a better house which is typically a vertical living and mm-hmm. uh, I, and i'm going to develop it uh, for them for free in return the developer gets the whole the rest of the land which is now cleared because so now you can understand your stacking population who are horizontally spread into a vertical structure so you yeah. have a lot of horizontal spaces freed in exactly in the same place where the slum was so in return of the uh, obligation of uh, be, building these kind of slum rehabilitation housing the developer gets the rest of the land as free and that land the developer can actually use to build high end houses and can sell it at a market rate so it's a fantastic right. policy okay. if you see um, so all these wilds prior to some rehabilitation housing the government was like, literally struggling with compensation and uh, uprooting people uh, getting a uh, kind of consensus that people want to move and have to move and the government was really struggling with a lot of compensating these people when they were uprooting overnight with this policy the government completely goes out of the picture in terms of compensation and other things it's mm-hmm. completely done as a bottom up approach because the slum dwellers want to go into these houses they get a better quality house absolutely free so there is absolutely no way they are paying for this and yeah. the developer is also very happy because he gets a prime land completely vacant to build houses which he can sell at least in mumbai comparable prices to manhattan a very unique urban form which you don't see most of mostly in the global north but in global south you'll see this sort of a structure that you'll have very high end offices and a very high end bungalows and residential complexes and you'll have a mm. like a prolific slum right behind it because the whole service sector for these high end houses and the resident of offices come from these slums the mm, the uber okay. drivers the lift men the maid servants everybody comes from these slums so their proximity to these high end housing is absolutely a necessity in this case yeah so well, there's a very okay. so, so it really does work for both yes. then yeah exactly yes. you just said yes symbiotic yeah so the government yeah. has laid out plans uh, so it does audits it does see whether they are so there are there's a special purpose vehicle for the slum rehabilitation authority uh, yeah. it's a of the government of maharashtra so the special purpose vehicle looks into whether the houses were built as per the building guidelines that were uh, that was developed and uh, mm-hmm. as per the uh, as per the uh, uh, the uh, what would i say the developer enters into an agreement with the government the slum rehabilitation authority that he's obligated to give these 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 things and okay. uh, they kind of do a compliance check before saying that yes so they act as a facilitator about in the whole housing sector and overnight they don't actually play any 
kind of a role of uh, doing anything on the ground it okay. automatically the mechan the machinery automatically moves as because there are a lot of willing uh, partners uh, in the whole machinery and, yes uh, yeah but even even so there yes. must be some sort of i suppose regulation and again i suppose yes. this is the government's role then is yes. that regulation yes. of both confirming yes. you are who you say you are and then that that you're you qualify i suppose for these houses yes so so this this i i call this a very fantastic plan but it never looked at on the knockoff effects that it was trying to do so what because it wanted to facilitate more and more housing and close the housing deficit uh, what it did was it relaxed a lot of uh, building development guidelines and all only uh, mentioned the minimum required guidelines and i will come back to that later on in our discussion that why this became uh, kind of a detrimental to the quality of life these slum habitation housing us hence kind of uh, posing themselves to the inhabitants there it's all definitely an upward movement in terms of their lively uh, lifestyle and definitely in terms of their where they were living it provided a shelter for the first time you would see they got a toilet inside their house so now women do not have to uh, eat less or drink less at night um so that they don't have to visit a toilet for the theory of going out yeah exactly so so that was that was something that most of the women which we have interviewed during the course of our various research projects that we have taken most of the women said that we were very very happy because now we have a toilet in our house and yeah. that's a, so you you see overnight you actually give a better quality of life and things were uh done in i wouldn't say uh, they had uh, they didn't have a very good intention they did have a very good intention in this uh, whole process but i believe it was a bit myopic and also mm-hmm. i believe it wasn't it wasn't a very comprehensive uh, well thought decision in that sense because housing itself is not a commodity anymore it's a process so you you kind mm-hmm. of enter into a house and that becomes a part of you uh, and your life uh as long as the house is there with you yeah absolutely and it it it's it's i suppose you have the the fact that you you know the thing that you mentioned for example about having the indoor toilet and and that safety and the quality of yes. life and a very tangible improvement in quality of life yes. but also from the point of view of i suppose value you would now think okay well i now own a house you know that that yes. that in terms of not necessarily a, a social ladder or anything like that but just from the point of yes. view of of really thinking I'm getting somewhere I'm making progress and and that is yes. is probably very tangible. It's definitely it's also a social ladder I wouldn't disagree with that because that yeah. that itself uh, this whole feeling that I'm rising in the status have actually had have had a lot of effects in there uh, in pushing them to a lot of poverty again. Absolutely yeah. so I suppose one of the reasons uh Renita that that we kind of got in touch was because obviously you know as was like most things at the moment there's a bit of a focus on covid-19 and the spread of coronavirus and right. we we were thinking about how you know obviously nedpro we've done quite a lot of work in kolkata with the mobile teaching kitchens for example which mm-hmm. give mm-hmm. uh people who are living in uh, slums the opportunity to learn about healthy eating healthy cooking and there's also the added benefits not just from a nutrition point of view but from community and learning and teaching yes. and all those sort of um skills that are probably a little bit more difficult to 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 measure but but are very real as well so one one of the things we were kind of thinking about was about the, the food environment and how the physical environment of the slum rehabilitation housing um affects the spread of coronavirus and then how all of that also affects the the food environment so if i can kind of go back on that a little bit 
I read one of yeah. your tweets recently and you were saying how you know social distancing and house design and how how can you really expect people to to social distance when you have a whole system of housing and uh, government policy of putting people in very high-rise apartments so how big a challenge is it to to contain a virus within one of these sort of communities or one of these you know these blocks or these tens of dozens of blocks that you have in, in right. these environments right so yeah even if i even if i don't know about how the virus acts and how the virus kind of spreads if i don't know the whole science behind it it's yeah. very commonsensical to think that people uh, so my question question was that when governments uh, declare policies or like kind of very declare very strict norms that from from so and so date people have to ex, uh, kind of ex, um, exercise social distancing and that that has to be like legally bound and if you are not doing you will be legally charged and all that mm. so my whole uh, the whole thing uh, raised that do you have a luxury to actually practice social distancing if you are living in a slum rehabilitation housing mm. if you are living in a housing which is so called supposed to be a move up of movement in your housing um, or in your social ladder in itself uh, do you have that degree of freedom to exercise and and that started uh, this sort of was uh, was a very first question that came to my mind because i i work very closely with people here so there are a lot of people i actually after this outbreak i actually called them up who are slum these uh, slum rehabilitation housing dwellers and to ask mm -hmm. them that whether they are doing fine because um, apart from the research i i have become friends with these people so yeah, it, it concerns me quite a lot and i started asking them what are you doing for social distancing and the person just laughed at me and said that uh, i are you even kidding to ask me this question yeah. because do you you know the realities and and i can tell you from my experience so i have done uh, work with um, in the slum rehabilitation housing where where we tried to see whether the slum rehabilitation housing had something to do with tuberculosis spread and we did find mm -hmm. out that um, in comparison to certain other designs slum rehabilitation housing does have a higher propensity to spread the disease of tuberculosis and that's bacteria and so yes. even if i don't know the whole mechanism of how much how, how the bacteria spreads or where the bacteria would survive and where not it's it's very easy to understand if you do not have a sunlight incidence in your inside your room and you do not have an adequate ventilation in terms of air exchange rates you're going to have a very poor quality of living inside Absolutely. and that was and the go ahead sorry yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Okay, and that was the starting point of my whole discussion when we started, and our whole exploration of what happens. Uh, why were the TB cases expanding in these areas mm. when people so, yeah, were I mean, cured? I, I was just thinking. I I I never actually thought about. I mean, obviously, social distancing is a very new sort of term and a new phenomenon. Yes. But yes. I never thought of it as a privilege before, and I think that's kind of yes. what, what you're highlighting here in many ways is that bringing up these people who are in the the slum rehabilitation housing and kind of saying, "Are, are you serious? You know, how, how could you expect us to be to be doing that?" And you know, we just maybe don't have the facility or don't have the the, the literally the space to to actually do space. that effectively. Exactly. So what, what have, kind of things, like, Ronita? Sorry, what kind of things? Yeah from a building point of view and an architectural point yes. of view are then important because again like you I wouldn't be an expert in virology by any means and I you know I wouldn't claim to be an expert on COVID-19 but what kind of things did you find maybe with the tuberculosis research yes. that you think at least from a, a structural point of view 
are yes. applicable to the to this virus yeah so when i was just just looking at it and i'm saying that you're asking people to stay at least like 1 meter away and that now it has extended to 2 meters away when you ask people to do that uh, in a house which is just uh, like 3 not even 300 square feet uh like 22 they uh, they are houses size that are around 22 to 25 square meters so if you where people uh, the household size is around an average household size is around 6 where up to 11 people stay um mm-hmm. how is it possible even if they stand vertically throughout the day and throughout the yeah. night how yeah. is it even yeah. possible for them to maintain that 1 meter distance and um, and it's not just within the house if you just come out uh, because we, there's a lot of uh, argument that when you're staying inside the, inside the house uh, keep your windows open so that there's a lot of sunlight and a lot of ventilation because if you are showing symptoms the only way you can get yourself cured is by staying in a healthier environment what mm. uh, in tuberculosis case we saw the daylight was heavily impaired so these houses are like around um, uh, 8 stories to 9 stories so okay. we found that up to the 7th story the room almost never received a uh, daylight and even if it received it was very diffuse so it was very very difficult so up to the fifth floor absolutely none because mm. the distance between the building was just 3 meters so you were always shadowed by the uh, adjacent buildings so yeah, daylight yeah. was completely zero and uh, air exchange rates were really really poor like 0.6 or point when when an um even a bare minimum uh, for a corridor spaces are like 3 exchanges for uh, for a healthy living it's around 6 air exchanges per hour and we were we were recording inside these rooms as 0.6 so again just just for for somebody without a background myself for example yes. in, in something like this am i right in saying that air exchange what you're really talking about is ventilation and air moving yes. in and out of yes. somewhere so yes. what you're saying here in in these types of houses you have a lot of sort of still air effectively yes yes lot of okay. still air and imagine people are cooking inside so we did an experimental campaign to understand what was the pollution created by the cooking or other daily practices that these people so in india people pray with lot of incense sticks in the morning there's okay, also yeah, lot yeah. of yeah so that creates a lot of indoor air pollution then there is also uh, you have to burn these mosquito repellent coils which also contribute to quite, quite a large amount of particulate matter concentration inside the mm. rooms and world health organization says that uh, a kitchen area in the, in a developing world should have a um, kind of a concentration of 50 to 60 ppm uh, microgram per meter cube for um, pm 2.5 which is the particulate matter of uh, which is uh, 2.5 and less and um, and we were recording something during the cooking it was around it can go something above 800 2000 and well wow, okay cooking, yes and even after cooking was stopped up, up to 2 to 3 hours um it persisted to a very high level more than 500 So oh, okay so it's, you, it's you, having a very can, real impact the the, the, yes. the regular things that you do every day is having a, a real impact yes. then on um, yes. the, the home environment See exactly so in this situation and and then this coupled with social cultural practices like women do not want themselves to be visible during cooking like uh, there okay. are there are myths that whatever i'm cooking people should not be looking at it 
and imagine if your houses are uh, on the uh, like overlooking the thoroughfare or the public corridor and your window only opens up to that corridor you have no choice either to keep your window open and uh, let people see what's happening inside the house or close the window while cooking so that creates another layer of uh, i think uh, uh, detrimental effects which uh, because people's behavior uh, or and social cultural practices are so much imbibed in so your pollution level stays for even longer time yeah and i think that's something that you know I, again i'd be honest i i wouldn't know enough about the culture to have thought of exactly and probably wouldn't have even considered that you know it, it's, it's, exactly. it's really interesting and i suppose with food right across the world we see this that that practice um cultural and social um, social practices some places religious practices have such a big impact but again it's it's right. really interesting to see that the impact of food there and cooking is directly affecting health not through the right. food itself but through the, the act of no. actually cooking it yes so in this situation when they were in the slums they did find a refuge because you know in the slums um, there was these small organic spaces where the women would come out and even even if they are cooking inside they would come out so they could escape the uh, indoor pollution that was created during cooking and after that and uh, they, it also these open spaces also provided a refuge in terms of their um from uh, to to kind of generate a social network among them yeah. and these communities thrive on social network their whole livelihood depends on social network and when they moved into these vertical slums the, there was a complete breakdown of that social network so today uh, when we when we did narrative interviews we have people saying that uh, if somebody broke a leg 10 houses from uh, from my house when i was in the slum i knew it instantaneously i knew that there's somebody who is ill or somebody has met with an accident today when i live here if somebody even who is just living next door breaks mm. a leg i don't even get to know for one week and because know. i don't just yes because i never go out and uh, we have seen because of this typical design women have been uh, i think they they are always the uh, burden uh, or shock observers um, of this whole urbanization process so initially because because they they were uh, doing some kind of jobs uh, as referred by their social network in in and around the area where they were living but now because of this complete breakdown of the social network they are they are now out of jobs so they yeah, yeah. literally live like almost 90% of their time indoors indoors and yeah and that has definitely has had nobody has studied it and but we have through our narratives we have definitely anecdotes to say that it has effects on their um, comfort levels in their mental health conditions also and that, that was another um, and, thing i was going to kind of actually comment on and ask you about because again thinking about the the previous way of life if you were living in one of these slums and i imagine a lot of your life there would have been outdoors or at least right you know between indoors and outdoors and yes. obviously you know um very warm very sunny countries a lot of time spent exactly. out in the sun out with other exactly. people probably you know even going back to what you were saying about that social network and all that kind of thing and then you take somebody and put them in this you know you were you were saying i think was it the 7th or 8th floor doesn't re- from yes. up until that point doesn't really get sunlight so if you're on the 3rd yes. or 4th or 5th floor yes you got this complete breakdown in social network you're not spending any yes. time with the sun you're not spending any time with fresh air again the 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 toll that that would take on your 
your mental health you know and your your yes. sort of your, your social interaction and all those kind of things is yes. probably again something probably difficult to to measure in comparison to the presence or absence of a virus but probably a very real yes. problem there as well yes and so there are a lot of knockoff effects when you start thinking about how to design a space uh, where which is socially social distancing enabled and yeah. that becomes a i think that's that's an innovation part which we need to and i think this whole pandemic would probably yeah like kind of kick start a new era of designing where you need um, you need to think about such situations i know you'll not probably um, kind of face a pandemic again in another 100 years but there even a certain um, uh, a certain kind of design element has knock off effects on other things uh, in yeah. especially especially in the whole realm of uh, quality of life and well being it's it's i think it's it's a, it's the it should be the starting point of rethinking our design into especially when you see completely the whole global south has adopted something or the other of this uh, which looks like the slum rehabilitation housing like in brazil they have this mina casa mina vida which means my life my my house and my life so mm-hmm. they they also give they also have a very similar sort of a program similar sort of setup in, yeah yes uh, and in ethiopia they have completely emulated what mumbai has done because they feel that it's a very success story and it it's in as a housing policy it is a very success story but it if you see from the knock off effects probably it's not not that so it's it's the whole challenge is if you don't get it right at this point when things are transitioning we might end up the whole global south uh, with large number of houses but with large number of associated problems which were not even known before these houses were built so i'm yeah, trying to and, and uh, yeah, that, work that goes on back these, to yes. to something we were speaking about before we actually started recording this because i'm just thinking the way you're talking there and obviously the 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 global move towards sort of urbanization means that right. presu- presumably this is going to be happening happening worldwide and you've mentioned yes. a couple of countries where it is happening and it goes back to like i said before we started recording you were talking about how these problems aren't just a problem they don't just originate from poverty and i think that's often yes. the the interpretation possibly from this part of the world from the uk or from ireland or um, yes. you know western europe we'll say where we we often you know i'm speaking for myself at least think of oh, well a lot of it's probably coming down to poverty but actually yes. you were saying it's the infrastructure around yes. it and it's not necessarily yes. thinking in advance because again the slum rehabilitation housing is coming from a fantastic place and it obviously is achieving something very positive but like you say if it's not done in the right way planning for these potential pandemics and touch wood it won't happen again but you know we never know um you you potentially run into problems further down the line that you never could have really anticipated exactly absolutely what you said so now if you look at housing as an infrastructure if it was better designed probably we could have provided them the degree of freedom to exercise their social distancing Yeah. It was never thought of it and I I I do not blame the architects or the designers who did it. Of course. But yeah. I yeah because you cannot anticipate such kind of a situation until unless you have really been sensitized about it. But yeah, I mean it's it's without con- it goes back to what you're saying about context without the context of a pandemic or any other problem that we may run into, it's very hard to get people to change their behaviors without a, yes. a justifiable reason, yeah. Yes. it's it's not about how poly, the same same lines being said in a different context wouldn't would have a very different effect on the population mm. so that's why when i look at slum rehabilitation housing i look at each case so when i looked at the 
Brazil case or the Indonesian case or the Ethiopian case, it is very, very different from uh, the Mumbai case. Although if you see in policy, probably they are almost very, very similar. They play out in a very different way. So when I, when I was saying that it's an infrastructure problem, I'll give you an example because um, when people moved from the slums to the slum rehabilitation housing, they, they felt for the first time that they have a house. So when you have a house, what do you start doing? You try, start uh, populating it with uh, furnitures and electronic items and things mm -hmm. which you have aspired. So there's a lot of aspirational buy. And in doing so, they often push themselves to uh, like kind of taking loans uh, from okay. friends and families and push themselves to a vicious cycle of poverty in that sense. So I'm saying the house itself could have been designed in such a way that you do not need an assistance to these kind of devices anymore mm. because they were not used to it. The whole indoor living, the whole push of people being more indoors has bought them um, the kind of an aspiration to go ahead and purchase these appliances. No, that's that's all really interesting. Can, can I bring you back a little bit to back yes. towards food and cooking? So yeah, yeah, sure. again, in the in the article on the Cambridge University website, which I can I can link to in the description of the podcast when we release it, um, it's titled uh, "Fixing India Slum Rehabilitation Housing." You you mentioned that people used to cook together in open spaces, but now obviously yes. they're cooking individually in their homes. Yes. And you mentioned that fuel consumption has gone up, and that the the thing about opening or not opening windows and those sort of factors. Yes. What yes. about cooking habits and? The, either I suppose the things that they're cooking the way that they're cooking or even things like the social interaction around meals has that changed as well because I'm yeah. thinking if you if you were previously cooking you know in in groups and maybe you, you mentioned sharing a television between families so do yes. they eat together do they interact with each other that way and if so how has that changed with the slum rehabilitation housing and and what what potential again I don't expect you to be an, an expert on the yeah. the sort of nutrition or the health but what sort of yes. things have you noticed from the the food point of view that have changed yeah I, I'll give you a few anecdotal uh, narratives that we have got from, uh, from our focus group discussions and although I'm not an expert into it but we we are now actually exploring this area of how cooking factors have changed but mostly yeah. when we are Ask them, yeah, mostly when we have asked them that how cooking practice have changed, the only thing that they said was that now we, we so one thing is very uh, same, they cook three to four times a day because that's the cultural norm. You have okay. to have uh, fresh food every time. So even if they have a refrigerator in the house, it's not used to store food. It's used to store things uh, like uh, which, which needs longevity, like for meat, fish, milk, mm -hmm. or or if you are a fruit seller or if you are a flower seller, you store your stuff in the, in the refrigerator. So the refrigerator is not actually acting as a welfare device in these conditions. So they do they, they are cooking their meals almost three, three to four times a day, always a okay. fresh food. Oh. So that's one uh, aspect of it. Secondly, uh, what they said was that uh, because they are now living indoors and they are cooking uh, like almost... Uh, throughout the day leading around like they spend around one to one and a half hours in cooking so now you know in a, in, a, in a 24 hours after, after completing all your maintenance activities cooking does take up a lot of time so yeah. that has also pushed women to something which i term into in one of my publication as time poverty so initially yes, if you are yeah. sharing things 
if you are sharing your say preparation of the food or something you do have some amount of time left for yourself after your cooking and eating habits and maintenance activities have been done you do have some time to socialize you do have some time to yourself in recreational activities but um, now what uh, these women are facing is mainly a time poverty thing so because they then they are now restricted to these spaces one secondly they do not have a lot of sharing happening so uh, they individual so the lot of activities have become more individual rather than group Mm. thirdly uh, this i uh, quote from one of the focus group discussions uh, they said that my so there's this lady who has uh, two um, uh, children one is uh, almost like 9 years old and one the other is 4 years old mm-hmm. the and um, he says the 9 year old uh, looks like 6 year old and the 4 year old almost looks younger than her because she okay. hasn't grown quite a lot over over the time that she mm. was supposed to grow so there is definitely incidences of stunted growth in here although i'm not an expert into it i have never studied it but yeah. i have definitely uh, read about it and these an- anecdotal evidence do tell us and point that definitely because there is no open space to go out and play for kids and um so there is definitely a stunted growth that is happening so it's not just the food habit the, the it was the practice of cooking actually enabled uh, the women to spend their time while the children played in an open space so they can keep an eye on the children but yeah, now so, because, so the whole the whole environment yes, has changed yeah, and yes. and has changed the ability for them and the kids to play and everything else as well then yes. yeah So now now you can understand where the time poverty comes so now the woman does women have to look after the kids so the kid typically doesn't go outside because if you send them downstairs which uh, in the in the large open space that is provided um, which which was supposed to be completely green when the plants were being uh, kind of uh, sanctioned um, they um, they have now turned into places of uh, drug abuse social uh, apathy and okay. also Ill- illegal parking so women are very very afraid to send their children outside yeah and i think it, it that's I, i i really like that term time poverty because i was that was one of the things i was thinking about if you were previously cooking in groups with other women and other families and everything else presumably there was certain you know sharing of of jobs and sharing of roles right. and that kind of thing whereas now i suppose in many ways what you're doing is you're duplicating or tripling the the workload because each person is doing yes. it in their own in their own yes. family and i was thinking then as well because again a thing that we've looked at with the with our own mobile teaching kitchen in kolkata is mm-hmm. is how food and uh, nutrition and cooking also lends itself towards education so passing down things like passing down recipes passing down um family exactly. stories and again that interaction because again i can i can imagine if you are one family and you cook with the other family then you're learning from them they're learning yes. from you you're around their yes. kids they're around your kids and it's it's probably this whole community thing that again when we go back to what we were saying about the slum rehabilitation housing sort of raising issues that you could never really perceived or never really imagined to begin with this is another yes. one of them where you're because you're cutting people off and 
I suppose it goes back to what you were saying about the breakdown of that social network is yes. you're you're reducing the interaction for um learning from each other whether it's food yes. or nutrition or like I say cultural stories myths all those kind of things that exactly that are sort of I suppose the fabric of a community in many ways um and then even even the thing of the kids having to be in the house there's only so much playing you can do in in a house not to mind again a very small house that these that these tend to be as well so it's we I suppose I, I, I'm biased in that food and nutrition is my background but I see this as like such a core element and again if you think of what you were saying about the the women spending so much time the day cooking three four times in the day yes. it's, it just makes up such a large proportion of people's days and it's probably something that has suffered quite significantly from this policy and again that's not to criticize the, yes, the developers yeah. or the policy itself but merely raising the issue that this is maybe something that wasn't really given enough consideration to begin with exactly yes probably never ever thought of it and so my whole whole argument is not to criticize the policy the policy is really needed and very fantastic especially given the urbanization rates that we are facing currently um, but it needs to be looked in a holistic manner which probably yeah. uh, beca- because i think there's a lot of disconnect between different um, government uh, bodies the housing will never probably think about public sanitation and the Mm. Uh, nutrition and uh, health we never think about them so we need to think in a holistic fashion where we think when we are thinking housing we do not think it as a commodity it, it provides services right now so housing is definitely a service which is interconnected to health to energy to um to, i think even economics to uh, like subsistence activities are a lot of done in these uh, Uh, houses so you, we do find a lot of informal activities happening which are economic activities so and and i think again that's a really nice way of thinking of it because I, especially i suppose as as a as a young person thinking about moving into a house and all that kind of thing you do tend to think of a house as a commodity but am i right, right. saying was was it in brazil was it mi casa mi vida was that the, yes. the, the kind of yes. phrase so my yes. my house my life that it, it's yes. more than just a commodity it becomes yes. a really central part of your I suppose your identity as well because you, your your exactly. house and where you live is an intrinsically exactly. linked to who you are and everything about you exactly so we, we say we we are what we eat probably we are where we live in that sense yes. so yeah yeah also because we are looking uh, at uh, these uh, cities especially india south Af- africa and uh, brazil and other southeast asian countries which are emulating this policy there's a large chunk of these houses are yet to be built because we they are now the probably is just one third of the houses that are built india okay. will build like two third of the housing stock is yet to be built and they are going to emulate this uh, whole policy and if we can do some interventions at this point we might get a housing policy or a housing uh, like a, a housing form or a housing typology which is which is correct in all senses and it's very futuristic So, so there's a great opportunity looking, to actually yes. influence that and and implement some yes. of the learning points from yes. from India for example before these houses are built elsewhere yeah yes that's that my whole my whole concern is that that if you get it right at this point if you understand the intervention points at this point it's very easy to change the points yes. and uh, and it's very easy to modify the contracts which the developer signs and because in the end the, the it's always a win win situation that is created we just have to uh, rightly identify what exactly is a winning situation we have probably identified yeah. a part of the winning situation right uh, currently 
Yeah, and I suppose they've 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 or the policy has probably identified the core issue, which is the the physical house. But then, yes. I mean, it, it, I suppose I don't need to tell you as an architect that the the actual infrastructure is is only the I suppose the skeleton or the shell of it, and then it's it's the the in the things inside in it then that really decide how functional it is, whether it's from yes. a uh, going back to what you were saying about the the movement of air through the the building and the ability to cook the ability to play the ability to socialize and all these things that are i suppose in many ways they're add-on uh sort of value-added things but really they're they're the things that either make a house whatever it might be functional or less functional and i think if, if we were to kind of summarize or i suppose from my point of view as somebody coming from it with without a background in in any of this really it seems as though the slum rehabilitation housing policy is an absolutely fantastic policy and it's worked very well in many ways, but there mm-hmm. is still a lot of um, improvement or potential to, to do it better mm-hmm. in, in countries that haven't really done it yet. Again, I suppose like most things, context is just so important because, yes. um, you know, I, I, you, you can take the best solution in the world from one situation and place it in a completely other uh, yes. environment and it suddenly becomes obsolete because for x number of reasons probably immeasurable numbers of reasons so um no i mean look it's 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 a really really interesting um overlap between i suppose the physical environment and the everything to do with the house itself and i suppose yes. from my own point of view or my own bias and the nutrition and the food yes. side of things as well so yes. thank you yes. so much for um for all of that i think i think that's probably um given us all a lot of a lot of food for thought and a lot to think about it's again it's the the benefit of doing a podcast like this and speaking to different people working in different areas is you get to see again different contexts and different sort of um focuses and things and it's definitely given me personally um a lot to think about and um open my eyes to a whole area I had never considered and how it interacts with what I would look at in that situation and how, how they play off each other so no thank you so much and um if people want to uh, follow you or follow your work, are, are you active on social media or is there anything yes. in particular that, that you do on social media, Renita? I, I I am quite active on Twitter, but although I only discuss mostly my work there, but yep. I'm very happy to, if somebody wants to reach me through email, uh, I'm there. Uh, can, can I uh, do a lot of uh, provide quick updates in my research group uh, um, uh, like research group webpage, so I, I'll definitely right. uh, send you the link, which you can link through to the podcast. We can link so through the podcast as yeah. well. Yes, so you can actually. So uh, there are several ways to reach out to me. So it's um, I, and I'm always open to discuss and understand because um, the knowledge is very restricted in this area. And uh, mm. the more I talk to people, I understand there's this 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 sort of. Uh, side probably I've never ever even thought of it it might it would have never crossed my mind so yeah, I'm very yeah. open op- open to collaborations and uh, yes definitely from going forward when I'm looking at uh, at the building design from the cooking practices and nutrition perspective definitely I'll get in touch with you fantastic thank you so much for your time and good luck for the rest of your time in in India and for your um, eventual move back to the UK hope hopefully it'll be sooner rather than later or you you'll get your you get what you want at least yeah thank you james thank you thank so much you, and uh, thanks so much Okay, so I hope that you enjoyed that conversation with Dr. Renita Barton and that you learned something during the course of the conversation. I have to say it's a real privilege doing a podcast like this and getting to speak with people that I otherwise mightn't. And like I said a few times throughout, 
it really gave me a new perspective on a lot of things that I wouldn't have thought about previously that might affect health, nutrition, food, behaviours, all that kind of thing. And I hope the same is, is true for you as well. Um, as I mentioned at the beginning of the show, the next episode, uh, which will be coming soon, is with Professor Shimon Ray. And we'll build upon this conversation and delve further into the world of food security, specifically in low and middle income countries. If you enjoyed this episode, then please do let us know. You can get in touch on social media. You can rate and review the podcast wherever you choose to listen. And most importantly, you can share it with contacts. So many people at the moment are working from home or have a little bit of extra time on their hands. And you never know who might gain from learning about the podcast and even some of our previous episodes as well. So please do share it with people who you think might be interested. Finally, if you are interested in any of our work, including the mobile teaching kitchens, for example, which were mentioned a few times during the podcast, and any of our other educational offerings, then please do visit our website. We're running a free webinar on an introduction to nutrition as a health science and also our role in it as NEDPRO on May 14th, uh, 2020. So I'll add a link to that in the show description. That's a free webinar on the 14th of May. And that's about it for now. I hope you'll join us again for more topics about nutrition. And until then, thank you very much for listening.